This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Rumya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Kelly and Rumya. Now, I may not sound like Rumya, but it is she, and we're here until 2 p.m. or until 4 p.m. Eastern time. Jeez, I lose... Now, he is there, but he's not here as of yet. We're just figuring out some tech things. So in the meantime, it's just me. And I want to get to what's coming up on today's show. Fern Lullum is joining us from the UK. She joins us bi-weekly, and this time we're kind of getting into story time with her and her decision to become a freelance reporter. She's going to let us in on why she chose to do this, why she continues to do it, and I think it's the comparison between that and a full-time salary job, so we'll find out more. Registered nurse Leslie DePoe is also joining us on the show, and we're talking about alcohol consumption. Someone pointed out earlier today that this is just days ahead of the Super Bowl game, so I don't know, but she's going to have some interesting things to say, of course, and informative because of her industry, uh, the good, the bad, and the sober, she calls it. We have our weekly roundtable, speaking of sports, on our roundtable this week. The guest is NBA TV Canada's Randy Irvin, and he's going to join us to talk basketball. I think we're just inches away from the deadline right now, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit of sports in the second hour of the show. Lots to look forward to there. Now, I, I want to get to a clip uh, shortly, but before that, I want to remind everybody that we are reading this month on the Kelly and Romeo Book Club. How, oh no, let me get the title right. I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. Now, Jeanette McCurdy, you might know her for playing Sam on iCarly, also Sam on Sam and Cat. Uh, and this book is a whirlwind. The way that I've been describing it and feeling as I get to the end of the book, actually, is that it's like ripping a Band-Aid. And she writes so candidly uh, in such force. And she also reads very fast. Now, if you're not used to it, because I'm used to speeding up my books to get the, the narrator sounding a little faster, but actually, at 1x speed on Audible and on Sela. Jeanette reads so quickly that it feels much faster than that. So I tried to slow it down to see how that feels, but um, that was not working either. So I enjoy it, but I wanted to give you a heads up if you are picking up the book that uh, she's a fast narrator and very good also. So get into the book. I'm glad my mom died. Jeanette McCurdy, available in human narrated audio on Sela and available on Audible with the same narration. And Sela, uh, of course, is C-E-L-A library dot C-A. Now let's talk about this. A new and innovative miniaturized pacemaker has been given approval for, for patients beyond the clinical research phase, and it's pumping some Canadian content. 
It was developed in part by Calgary cardiologist Dr. Derek Exner, who calls last year's Health Canada approval a game-changer in cardiovascular care. A pacemaker keeps a person's heartbeat from going too slow and helps regulate heart rhythm by sending a tiny electric signal to the heart. This new device is smaller than a AAA battery. Its battery lasts over 15 years, and it is leadless, no wires. It's inserted through a small incision in the groin and guided into the right lower heart chamber. Exner says patients forget they have a pacemaker. Calgary's Foothills Medical Center will be a center for training outside physicians about the new device. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Couple things to notice here and the first one for me is how agitating and frustrating it must be for something uncomfortable to be the uh, rest of your life, right? Like some kind of invasive device. Uh, I'm thinking of catheters specifically because that's the most discomfort I can think of. But, you know, something like that where it goes into your body and it's foreign and it has to stay in there for potentially the rest of your life. And that means any kind of progress on these kind of things is huge. It's groundbreaking. It's probably uh, causing so much relief and guiding people into so much relief compared to what may have existed before this. Now, the way that it was described, I think that this is absolutely fantastic. And for anyone who may be experiencing uh, having a pacemaker that hasn't had this version of it, probably has the comparisons to say. Now, I think it's a bold statement, I think, to say um, patients claim they don't feel it at all. You know, that statement stands for itself, but I wonder about the nuances, right? Like, do we know that that is how everybody feels? Is this just a blanket statement we can throw in about anybody and everybody using this newer edition of the pacemaker? But, you know, we think of science as at least I tend to sometimes default to this uh, sense of science as big leaps and big strides and like incredible things that are going on in the world of science. But sometimes it is these tweaks to things that already exist and why that's also improvement and uh, important to keep track of because we know that these things make as much of a difference. The little changes, the the devices getting smaller, the process getting easier, um, the availability to check in on people having these devices in their bodies and saying, okay, yes, uh, that is incredible stride with science as well. Gonna pause it there. We're gonna take a break and after two minutes, we're checking in with Michael Fair. He is reviewing, as he usually does with audio entertainment, volume two of Mardi Gras's um, rendition, adaptation of Arabian Nights. And he's here to share his thoughts. When I think Arabian Nights, I'm still going back to Misery by Stephen King, it's in my head. We're gonna be back after the break on Kelly and Romeo. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. We're back. This is Kelly and Ramya on AMI. If you're listening on AMI Audio, AMI TV, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. We've got plenty of things to get to during our two-hour time together so let's get into it michael fair is uh joining us he's decided to check out volume two of marty ross's adaptation of arabian nights and i can't wait to hear his review let's bring him on 
Audio entertainment and accessible technology are increasingly important in our lives. I'm Mike Fair, here to help you make the most out of your devices. We'll share tech tips and product reviews. Plus, I'll steer you towards the best accessible games, audio dramas, and podcasts. We'll talk about it all here on Kelly and Ramya. As we await Kelly's return onto the show, Mike, you and I will get into it. So what's the premise of the Arabian Nights stories? This is just, it, it can't be better timing. We just finished Misery by Stephen King, and there's, uh, I was telling people before the break, <laughs> that there are so many references to these stories and just like the, the premise of it. So you fill us in. Okay, well, yeah, the, the Arabian Nights is, is basically, uh, it, it's a series of stories where, uh, it starts because Shirahazad, uh, she's a daughter of a vizier uh, in this land where a sultan has gone uh, a bit uh, psychotic, and he will—he's uh, never—he can't remain satisfied with any woman. He'll fall in love, uh, insist on marrying whatever woman, and then a day later, uh, cut off her head. Mm -hmm. And this has continued for a while. And, and of course, the daughter of the grand vizier sees this, Shirahazad, and, and thinks, oh, this is awful. How can I stop this? And so she, with, with uh, her father's help, uh, kind of un uh, gets into a situation where the vizier, uh, where the Shirahazad marries the king, uh, the sultan. And uh, unfortunately, the sultan, as usual, uh, after they've uh, you know had a night together, have has uh, decided that no, even even she is unable to satisfy my desires, and uh, so. But uh, Shah has added things quickly, and it was basically, well, if I tell you a story every night uh, for a thousand and one nights, uh, will you let me live? And the king agrees to this, uh, and so she basically is now, if she doesn't isn't able to captivate the king with a story every night, uh, she she'll lose her head in the morning. Mm. So that's the treadmill she's now put herself on. Okay. So I don't know if this adaptation features all 1,000 and nights, 1,001 nights, but which stories are covered in the volume? So this uh, this volume is is really focused uh, on Sinbad the Sailor, on those particular stories which are told in over uh, one night, uh, it seems. Uh, and uh, so basically she's... Uh, got the sailor. Uh, he's young. He's uh, impetuous, and he gets a uh, wealthy father, uh, kind of a rich, spoiled kid. Uh, wastes all his wealth, basically, and uh, basically gets into debt, and is basically trying to escape his debt collectors. And gets on a ship, sets out to sea, and has a series of adventures that that sort of transform him, uh, make him wiser, and. Uh, is uh, it's kind of his journey into the into the wider world and and uh, into the sea itself. Do you know uh, if his portion of the stories, how much like the percentage of that in the bigger scheme of the Arabian Nights? It's not uh, it's not massive. Okay. You know, it's it's one of the, the the portions of it that's maybe seven or eight stories long, as I recall. Mm -hmm. uh, just very kind of. Uh, and it, it's not as quite as connectedly told in the uh, in the, in the Arabian Nights. It was okay. like a series of separate adventures, but in this case, it, there's an attempt to kind of make a, a more of an arc to it. Right. Yeah, and I, I can see why that would, would do well. Uh, and do we also know if this was one of the popular ones to begin with, Mike? Because we know that some of the the stories are pretty big. 
Uh, Sinbad seems to be in, in like pretty widely known, okay. kind of up there with Aladdin, uh, one of, in that tier of, of fame, right? It, yeah. It's the in, at least in the Western world, it, it seems to be one of the the must haves for uh, Arabian Nights collections. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of adventures does he end up in? He goes well. His escape. He, he he's trying to run away from his debt collectors, including his one of his enemies, Mutaz. Uh, he gets on a ship thinking he's escaping, sailing away, but no, it's a plot by Mutaz, who has told the captain of the ship about his reckless ways and what he wants done with him and uh, torturous death. But uh, before that can happen, uh, they get kind of waylaid in this fog and end up on this strange island. Uh, so the first adventure is them kind of dis- uh, discovering this island is not an island, it's a sea creature, and the peril that puts everyone in makes them kind of rethink their... Uh, the, the, their alliances and things. And it kind of goes from there. One one adventure leads to the next, to the next, in a series of uh, different things, pirates. Uh, there's uh, a, kind of a, a strange sea creatures, uh, different uh, elephants. There's uh, a herd of elephants under threat by greedy hunters, and, and uh, Sinbad gets involved in that. Uh, so there's a lot of different little stories uh, that he has to go through. I'm really intrigued by uh, the type of adventure that we get to see in this. How was the pacing, though? The pacing was a little off, I think. The first one had the advantage of really separate stories and separate nights, right? So you had the in-between what's happening in the day with the uh, Shirazad and the Sultan and and the family. Right. Uh, And then you'd go into the next story, and it would always be a different story with a different main character, kind of. In, In the second, it's all about Sinbad. And it all kind of blends together. And there are these exciting moments. And then there are these slow parts where dialogue happens. Because one of the things Marty Ross does is he tells classic stories uh, in a way that he puts his modern twist to them. And he gets into the heads of even minor characters. Mm. So he kind of tries to go, okay, what's motivating these characters? And gives them all their time on stage to sort of say what they're thinking, really. Like what their mental inner thoughts are. So... That, that kind of slows the pacing down in several points uh, during the story. So it's not all action. There's, there's fast-paced bits and then very slow stretches. Do you still get the daytime with Shahrazad and the family and the kids? Yeah? Yeah, some, de- yeah, some okay. degree, but it kind of fades in this. It's not as prominent as it was in the first uh, volume. Mm, okay. I mean, I'm curious about that because obviously it was a very... Uh, deliberate change in pace and in, uh, I guess, approach. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it really was. It was all this, the stories were strung together into one night, and you could just imagine how it's, it's the kind of story you'd come up with if, if you were absolutely desperate to stave off death, right? I mean, it has that ramshackle, hurried feel to it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I also think about it this way. You know, this uh, the Arabian Nights have been adapted, have been utilized, have been referenced, and everything, insp- the inspiration from this, the, the classic tale uh, has spun into anything and everything you could imagine. So, you know, wanting to be creative about it is probably one of the top intentions, right? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You really have to find your own way of telling these things if you want mm-hmm. to do anything with them now. And he's really tried to do that. Uh, you know, it's it, this is definitely veering into adult for adult listeners, uh, I would say, yeah. with these stories. Um, so it, no younger kids. The, yeah, it's, it's really really adult material, adult fantasy. Mm. Okay. Um, how was the sound and music? We didn't even touch on this yet. 
Yes, uh, the sound is, there was essentially no music. It was really all carried by the sound. Uh, sound design was pretty good. Uh, it just, it had um, it, it kind of a, an afternoon movie feel, not quite the, the all-encompassing heaviness of something like graphic audio would put out. Mm. This was more kind of what you'd, you'd imagine listening to on, on a TV in the afternoon kind of thing. Uh, so there, it's all done in stereo. It's it's, uh, but it just has this kind of. You're not quite immersed. You're more sort of. This is what it's what it's like. Like the, it depicts almost like I'd, I would imagine seeing on a TV screen versus like 3D glasses uh, kind of thing. It it has that storybook distance, but it works well for what it's doing. It, would you still categorize it as it as drama, not audiobook? You know, there's enough sound. Oh yes, drama. absolutely, okay. absolutely drama. There's yeah. sound all through mm-hmm. this. Yes, environments, soundscapes, effects. Yes, yeah, it's it's definitely a drama. Definitely interesting too that they didn't do much with the music. I'm curious about that. You know, if you're thinking about it as an omission. But uh, anyway, let's keep moving. What's the voice acting like? Voice acting is is very well done. All the actors took their role seriously. Uh, we had David. Uh, uh, David Ahmad as uh, Sinbad in the lead role. He did that really well. He really felt the young, kind of vulnerable beginning. And he's telling this from a, a ways after, right? So he, you know, you, he sort of survives the adventures and he's sort of illustrating like how he started out and how he, and you hear that, the journey he's on. You really care about that. And uh, Har- Har- Rahad Shah uh, does the uh, Razad, And I think she really, you feel the jeopardy. You feel the 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 you know she's mm. wearing down. This is the there's there she's been through numerous nights like this, and she's running on fumes trying to get these stories uh, together and save not only her but her sister who's next in line. So there's pressure on her, and you can really feel that. And she does that role, and it kind of includes narrating some of the story as well. I was going to ask about that. Is there a lot of narration from Shahrazad, or is it just when you get into the it's, story, it's playing it's, out the story? Kind of in and out of the stories, almost okay. like it's framing the stories more. Right, because the, the the lead character does, does of course, Sinbad is is telling the story to a companion. Okay, got it. Um, were you as satisfied? I, I'm getting the sense no, but you tell us with this volume yeah. versus the first one. It, it really, this one kind of suffered. I think of this that whole second part of a trilogy kind of thing. It kind of is is so there's so much going on, and it gets so kind of spread out that it doesn't quite have the impact i think that's kind of what happened here uh it it just didn't have the variety that really helps the first one have a more interesting feel than this you sort of get almost i I zoned out in places i i don't like when that happens but that that kind of happened in this one it it got to you know there were some draggy bits and then some some fast moving parts and the stories kind of almost blended a bit into each other it just it kind of threw me i was like okay why how did we get here right and i'd have mm-hmm. to go back and and check <laughs> now i feel kind of mean for asking this but i have to say because you brought up graphic audio if graphic audio were to take this and do something else with it do you think that it would be more up your alley yeah, I, I think so because of their style. They have they bring all of their sound resources to bear. They have uh, a bit more uh, a pretty wide cast of characters, actors. I think they could have done something with this. Now, granted, what they would have done would have been longer because they they stretch everything out pretty much, and 
so you might, I don't know what they would do pace wise because they don't cut anything. You get exactly what is in a book. So right. it would be interesting to hear what they ended up doing with Arabian Nights because I don't know how well it would work with what they typically try to do. It would be very neat to see if they if they got to cut it into their heads to try. And to your knowledge, they don't have something like this out there already? Or we just, we don't know? Not Arabian Nights, because okay. it's not really quite in there. It, that would be more of a big finish thing to, to sort well, of grab it at, yeah. at classics like that. But yeah. graphic audio, they don't even go at American classes, classics. They go for like Westerns and other very American-centric uh, things more, mm-hmm. more than not. And some British as well. Yeah. Now, follow-up to that question. Do you feel that this was subpar for audible or do you think that they've you know done what they've had to do with it you're just not the super fan you were with the first volume you know it's it's the quality of production is right up there it's not like this is more poorly produced than the first volume it just doesn't quite hang together as well it's it's a matter of of the writing and the structure of it versus the performances which were all very at least as good as the first one like Mm -hmm. every no one kind of let the production down uh, Sound-wise, was just as good. It just, uh, for some reason, the, the how they paced everything d- didn't gel as well. Yeah, I, I felt as the first one. Well, the good thing about this review is that you've been kind of, you know, sub-reviewing the first volume uh, all along. So if people want to check it out, they can check out either. Uh, was it worth the yes. audible credit though? At the end of the day, Mike. Uh, for me, no. Uh, I would say not. Uh, there are better dramas out there. I think. Tough critic on this one, Mike. I, I don't yes, remember the last time you said I, no for the audible credit question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not. A, it's not a very common occurrence that I really missed something ahead of grabbing it. But every once in a while, I do get bit. Yeah, that's uh, all this, right. This was one such occasion, unfortunately. And we're happy that you go out there and review these things for us, Mike. Thank you so much. Catch you later. Absolutely, a pleasure as always. You can find Arabian Nights Volume 2 or Volume 1 on Audible. It's one Audible credit or $19.12 no, $19. for Audible members. After the break, stick around because we're checking in with our bestie from the UK, Fern Lalam, and her decision to become a freelance journalist. This is Kelly and Romeo. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Romeo return with more in a moment. It's Kelly and Ramia on AMI. I'm Ramia Amuthan joining you from Toronto, and we await Kelly McDonald and his presence in London, Ontario. Uh, I got to say, though, our last conversation, well, mine, with Mike Fair is really intriguing to me because I love how we are not just talking about the the surface level audio stuff anymore. You know, in the community, um, there was a time when audio entertainment was just... Uh, you know, it was just getting big or it was just a thing. But now there's the critique out there, the reviews, the, yeah, but this is better, but that's not as great. Or there are other uh, comparative products that you can find on different platforms. So all of that was mentioned in our previous conversation. Moving on to the next conversation, let's check in with our bestie from the UK, Fern Lullum. What's on your mind? I'm Fern Lullum from the UK, and whether serious, silly, or somewhere in between, I've got you covered. Let's face it, the most effective therapy is a chat with your bestie. Fern is hitting us with story time today because we're going to talk about your experience being a freelancer, Fern. 
Yes, we absolutely are, Amya. But just before I get into that, I just want to say that yeah. for anyone who's got enough vision to see, the reason I look like a pirate today is because I have, I'm have i fresh out of eye surgery. So also, if I'm even more crazy than usual, it's because I, I'm using anesthetic as an excuse today. Okay, got it. I hope that's... I thought you were just like getting into your role as a pirate on the show. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. that's one of my freelancing gigs, you see, Ramya. Yes. Um, and I I started on this freelance journey about four years now, and it's definitely been a roller coaster. So excited to talk about it today. Oh, I am I'm really here for all the juice burn. So what was it that made up your mind, first of all, to give up a job where you were employed by an organization to become a freelancer? Well, it was a difficult decision, but it was something that I thought about long and hard and went back and forth on a lot. Um, but really, I just wanted to do the thing that I was really passionate about. You know, I'd always studied to do radio, always wanted to do something in communication and journalism. And I just felt that, you know, my skills weren't being put to the best use doing the job that I was doing. And I just really wanted to pursue the thing that my heart was telling me that I needed to do. So how long did you go through that though before getting into what your heart wanted to do how long yeah. did you like put I, I up mean, with the rest years. of it yeah. <laughs> yeah it was not a quick process I, it was like the kind of anxious tennis game that you do in your mind where you're like but I really want to do it but but then there might be this reason and what if this happens and what if that happens it was a whole mess and it definitely was not a decision that I made lightly that's for sure yeah Totally relatable, though. I think a lot of us go through, you know, the exact same thing you're talking about, stuck at one job or uh, in an area of life where we're like, I don't know if I want to leave this for the unknown, the abyss of something else, right? Even if you know that that's what you wanted to. Did you have doubts, though, even near the end that it was the right decision? Absolutely. I had doubts all the way through because I guess the biggest doubt is I really want to do this, but what if I make that leap of faith and I just don't get the work that I was hoping for or it just doesn't work out and then I really regret it? I guess that's the biggest fear, isn't it? Yeah. And even the last day as you were walking out your uh, job door? Yes. Okay. Oh, that day, I just remember feeling very excited, but but terrified at the same time and just yeah. thinking, am I doing the right thing? I really, really hope I am. Oh, man. Okay, we'll get into that. But once you left your old job, did you already have, like, because I always wonder about this, how much did you prep for yourself before leaving? Did you have uh, freelance work lined up for you and ready to get into yeah, I had a bit, but I didn't have a whole lot just simply because I was still working three full days a week. So it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike, as a lot of people can imagine. You can only do so much. And so when you still have a, a, an ongoing job that you're doing, you, you can start dipping your toe in the water of other things. But at the end of the day, there's only so many hours in the week. So right. I, I had some, but that was that fear of am I going to get enough to make up for the hours that I'm now losing from the job that I have? Yeah. And the passion will drive you, you know, so far, right? But then the rest of it is definitely planning because you have to take all this time out of your day that you already had uh, kind of set for you at a, at a job that you're going to every day, nine to five, and say, okay, what am I going to do with all this time and how am I going to get paid? Yes, yes. I mean, that is the fear, isn't it? That is, I might, I might be able to do this, I might be good at it, and I might even get opportunities at it, but am I actually going to make a living out of it? That's a whole other kettle of fish, and it's, yeah. it's scary. 
for some reason, when I think about it, I always wonder, like, do I have to go back to that old job begging for my uh, work back yes. because I failed, you know? But it, it, we'll get into yeah. it. So do you recommend working for nothing, possibly, like volunteer work or just you know, spending the time doing the grind as a way to get the publicity you need? Oh, now that is the question, isn't it? And it's something that I got a lot of differing advice on, to be honest. I remember asking lots of people that question. Um, some people would be very encouraging and say volunteer work is the way that you get your experience, you build you kind of you, your character up and also people start to get to know you through doing things for nothing um, and you build your network up through that. But uh, like we just said, you've got to make a living as well. Right. And I think you can get into the trap of the more you do for nothing, the more you will do for nothing because people go, well, she did that for nothing for that person. So yep. why wouldn't she do it for nothing for this? But, you know, and where does it end? And so I think at some point you've got to strike that balance between if I'm going to do it for nothing, I'm either going to get something out of it like um, a recommendation mm -hmm. or maybe a, a picture or a video to put on your website to promote yourself, or if it's just a cause that you really believe even, then then perhaps maybe do it voluntarily but otherwise I think you really do need to start thinking about how can I make money out of this yeah and and even if you're ready for that balance you then have to start asking for the money right like that yes. initial well I know I've been doing it for free for three years but <laughs> that's a tough conversation exactly yeah and, and nobody it, likes the money conversation no. do they? it's just so oh, cringy <laughs> it's always so awkward um and then I think you're speaking something that a lot of people in the community the disabled community can relate to Fern because at the beginning you're just you'll take anything you'll take anything because it's work um and then later you're like okay I kind of want to get paid for this now or want to get paid a little <laughs> more for this now what are some of the major frustrations that you find as a freelancer I mean, I think that is definitely one of them. And and it's hard because I think it can really have a knock on your self-esteem. No, I always bang on about the emotional side of yes. these things. But it, it, it is hard to sort of say, I actually value myself as deserving of being paid now. And I, I remember so many times thinking, or oh, maybe I, you know, maybe I'm going to look like I'm big headed or, mm. or maybe what are they going to think of me if I ask for money? And it's very, it's a difficult one. I think the other one is the kind of inconsistency of freelancing. It, it's not a decision that you can make lightly because you're very aware that quite often jobs will be short term jobs rather than, you know, you've got a contract that's going to go on indefinitely. Now, when you're freelancing, you've probably got a contract that might go on, I don't know, maybe even just for one project or maybe for six months at the most, but then you're going to be looking for the next thing. So you're always going to be kind of pushing and advertising yourself. And like we've said, that's not, it doesn't always come very easily to people to kind of put themselves out there and, and promote themselves. It's a skill you have to work at. It 100% is. And then yesterday we were talking about budgeting, Fern, and I'm thinking how much budgeting a person would have to do as a freelancer to make sure that you know what your month ahead is going to look like, your week ahead is going to look like based on these contracts that are coming through, right, the short term. So that's a good one. Uh, what yeah. do you love about it? I just love being able to to do what I am good at. I think there's just so much fulfillment in that and so many different opportunities. And I suppose the the nice thing, the flip side of the short-term project thing is that you're always doing something different, right? And you're always getting to, to work on new things so that it doesn't feel, I think quite often when you're in a, a job that just goes on forever, the thing, one of the biggest complaints is it can feel really stale and it can feel like, oh God, I'm just doing the same thing, you know, year in, year out sometimes. And so it really kind of keeps you on your toes and, and keeps you interested 
interested in what you're doing because you're always doing something different. That's true. You can kind of find the variety that you want, the balance that you want. I can appreciate that side of it. And now that you've done it for a while, how long has it been since you've been freelancing? I've been freelancing for about four years okay. now. Yeah. So now that you're four years into it, have there been times even now that you kind of wonder if this was a mistake? Definitely. And I think this is quite relatable. I, I imagine lots of people can can relate to this is I think that when I'm kind of putting myself out there and I am taking the plunge and I am trying to kind of say, oh, aren't I amazing, which, like I said earlier, it's, it's quite hard. And as a people pleaser, I'm sort of like, oh, God, I want to ask for money, but I don't know what are they going to think right. of me and all of those kind of things. And when you get the courage up to do that and then you don't even get a no, but you actually just get no response at all. So you don't uh. know where you stand with somebody. I think for me, those are the moments where I just think, oh, my God, have I done the right thing? That kind of thing, and you already pretty much said it, you're navigating through and through, right? Like this is not something, you might get better at it, but it's still something you're going to have to face on the daily or with each new contract or negotiation and uh, finding work. Like there's never a time when you're not going to have to do that anymore. You're constantly building your brand. Do you have any tips, Fern, um, maybe a top tip on how to get work as a freelancer? I would say networking is always important. It's a lot of times it's so true. The old adage of it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's so true that, you know, if you know the right people, then they can open doors for you. And that is usually the best way. So think about who do you know that can help you into this, mm. into the area that you want to get into. Yeah. So much word of mouth, right? What mm -hmm. else? Anything else? And uh, yeah, I, th I think I would say in terms of other things, it's just thinking, what are you good at? Um, and also contacting people that can actually help you. So quite often we just send blanket emails to everyone hoping that somebody will say, oh, okay, but actually thinking, where do I want to go to? And who in that organization do I need to contact? Go straight to the root of it rather than kind of just casting your net wide and hoping that somebody will come to you because they probably won't. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, we learned that the hard way, right? Especially yeah. when you're referring back to, you know, people like not getting back to you or just leaving you on red. You're thinking, okay, <laughs> how long do I wait for this connection to work out? The worst. Yeah. We, we know from some of your previous segments that you offer lots of freelance services, broadcasting, audio description, narration, uh, disability awareness training, others. We talked about your counseling stuff that's coming up very soon. Isn't that a lot to cope with? It is. It is 100%. And one of the reasons that I did that is because I wanted to cast my net wide. As you can imagine, when you're going into it and you're thinking, am I going to get enough work? The answer to that is we'll just take any work that, you know, that is vaguely in right. the right area. Um, and so I think it is good when you start out to, to do that, to be as open to as many opportunities as you can. And then if you get into the lovely position where you've got so much going on, that's where you can think, okay, which path do I now want to kind of hone and go down more and, and kind of think about stepping away from some of the others maybe yeah yeah just kind of um narrow or uh, focus yourself as you still yes. figure it out now knowing mm -hmm. you i don't think that you would have burned any of your old bridges and made enemies at your old workplace or anything like that no. you're such a friendly <laughs> person on oh. the surface uh, so <laughs> <laughs> what do you say do you still uh, meet up with your colleagues from your old workplace 
I do. I literally met up with them last week. They, nice. Yes, they still want to know me, which is very exciting and reassuring. <laughs> uh, we went out for a meal and yeah, it was lovely to see them. Um, I have to say they were talking about, you know, sort of office, pol- uh, office politics and all that kind of thing. And it did make me think, mm, may- maybe I did make the right decision. <laughs> oh, sure. no. Not, um, so, not the reminiscing yeah, I, I miss this I miss place. them, but maybe not the job. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. All right. Uh, overall, you're glad you became a freelancer? I am. I definitely am. I'm doing what I love. And, and I, you know, I get to have wonderful conversations with lovely people like you, Ramya, and, and yeah, just really do what I'm passionate about. And I think that's so important. Oh, well, we appreciate, you know, anytime you come on uh, every couple of months and you say, hey, I want to tell you a little bit more about myself and focus these segments on this. We get to know you a little more and you offer incredible tips for the community, dude. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Ramya, and I'm going to pursue becoming a pirate. Okay, well, good. Your first practice run. We can send you the video. Yeah, ahoy. Ahoy. (laughs) Fern Lalem joining us every other week on Thursdays. We kind of switched things up the last couple of weeks because of her eye situation, but she'll be back in the next two weeks to talk with us. After the break, Bill Shackleton's here with the buzz. We'll see what's up on that on Kelly and Ramya. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Shout out to an AMI-audio podcast, The Neutral Zone, on this week's edition of the show. Producer Jeff Ryman. Wow, what a familiar voice. And uh, he's joining Josh and Brock to discuss the importance of grassroots sports organizations. And, of course, they're throwing in some Super Bowl talk and uh, who's going to win, some of the prop bets and which ones have caught their eye. You know, all things sports. So we're going to talk, or they'll talk about it with the gang on the Neutral Zone. You can check it out Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. But if you missed that, you can, of course, catch it as a YouTube video podcast or as an audio podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Now, I am Ramia Amadhan. I've been here with you the whole time. Joining us now for the rest of the show is Kelly McDonald in London, Ontario, via the phone. And we've got an avatar, not an avatar, his headshot on the video feed. Kelly, welcome back. Or I should say welcome, because you weren't uh, actually here. Yeah, because I haven't haven't been, but at least now I can use my nice, I'm going to just... Oh, I'm all dressed up for today's show. I'll use these clothes later. Yeah, um, thank good you. point. And uh, sorry, some some funny technical stuff going on that just keeps me from being able to be so ever present in the physical being. But um, what's that picture with my blue shirt on, mm. golf shirt, and joining you, Rum? Thank you for joining us. It's always nice to have your voice on. And uh, be honest, did you already switch into your sweats or no? No, there was no time. I was crawling around on the floor trying to find something to connect in that's just I just elusive at the moment and not really sure what what's happening. And just because of the way things are, video looks good. Mm-hmm. There's no sound for me to hear. Yeah. I even sound good coming through, but I can't hear the studio except doing it on the phone like that. Oh, well, that's all right. We'll figure it out. And until then, we'll get into the buzz uh, where Bill Shackleton joins us Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays at the bottom of the first hour, right at the end to give us some stories to think about. Billy, welcome. Hello. Hey, yep. I've been hearing your nice new promos on AMI Audio. You sound great. Haven't heard them yet. I'm looking forward to it. I, I heard hope the Jacob first one puts today. one of them on. There you go. Oh boy, he started already. I, <laughs> I guess I should be listing a little more. Is that? Is that oh, what sheesh. The, yeah. 
gosh, guys. Thank God uh, Fern gave us all those tips on freelancing. We might be looking for jobs after this. Billy, <laughs> what do you have for us? Actually, this is a little Toronto-centric, but it's a very interesting story. So I know on the show we talked about telephone booths that are sort of disappearing or going going away the wayside. Mm-hmm. So this is this is mystery of shrink wrap mailboxes deepens. So the Toronto Star brings us this article. Um, essentially, what's going on is there there is an apparent number of mailboxes in Midtown Toronto that are shrink wrapped. So essentially what that means is if a box is shrimp wrapped, it, it is out of order. I have not run into any of these. I haven't I haven't either. Um okay. of course I'm not in Toronto, but apparently there's a concern um that the author has had and is that there are senior citizens, you know, there's with with all the emailing and going on, and basically there are still people that write checks. And there are still people that are, have disabilities and senior citizens who need to get to a mailbox. And in the middle of winter, there's a concern that there, there are safety issues. Uh, and, and basically, if your mailbox down the street is shrink-wrapped, um, uh, it means you, you can't use it. Mm-hmm. You can't use it. So the author made inquiries to Canada Post. And, and Canada Post has basically said... Well, first of all, the question was, is there an ordinate number of damaged mailboxes? And the second question that was asked was, um, why are they out of order if they are out of order? And Canada Post basically said that we take the security of our mail very seriously. And although a box could be appear to be damaged on the on the outside, or the inside, the outside would look good. So you wouldn't know. So basically they're saying that it could look like it's not damaged, but the inside, somebody could grab the mail. Yeah. So mm. the real or, question... Or the damage of somebody starting a fire in one or yeah, some of those ridiculous right. things that you know people, people, people can do, just like the damaging of bus shelters. Yeah, and but, but you know, the question for me is, is this a way of... Are they really cutting corn? What? Are, why? Are, why are they doing this? If there's an, if there's an, you know, more of these boxes that are shrink wrapped, are they really damaged, or are is this an attempt, um, a sneaky attempt, to maybe save money? Mm. And mm-hmm. do do you wonder if we see this with school buses? We hear it every day with drivers not showing up i wonder if carriers aren't showing up or you know the people taking right. the mail from the boxes back to the sorting uh, uh plant I, I wonder if they're running into these short so if they've decided that numbers have cut down or people are out on grievances issues concerns and maybe that's how come they've limited the boxes i mean let's face it you know they they start talking to lesser and lesser snail mail but who wants to see it go away i'm certainly sure the letter carriers and anyone who works for the post doesn't oh we are not ready to get rid of snail mail like mm-hmm. not in the least everything is still coming in through snail mail if anything like we're still putting up with it but um i i kind of get where you're coming from billy you know are we just kind of holding off on the real problem by saying okay 
this is not available, that one's not available, oh yeah, this whole street has no mailboxes anymore, um, and really we're not getting to the root of. Because that, that first answer about, yeah, the inside might be damaged and it looks good on the outside still sounds like a diversion to me. Because if we were on top of the problem, shouldn't we already have the other mailboxes ready to go to replace and swap them out and things like that? Yeah, um, I don't know. Um, the other issue that, that the article didn't mention and perhaps should have is that if you go to a shrink mailbox, you'll get instructions on where the nearest po post box to that is yes. where you can deliver. Well, how is a blind person going to know yeah. where to deliver? Yeah, this well, definitely sounds yeah. like accessibility issues. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like a fairly relatively quick solution either and that is a big concern that it sounds like a hey yeah we know this is the way it is um get used to it yeah uh, you know where you're saying well hold on i don't want to get used to it. when's it getting fixed uh, yeah. we'll see but uh yeah who knows maybe the the broader perspective is that not as many mailboxes are being used and therefore don't need to be maintained and therefore are being shrink wrapped we'll find out billy what else well we're going to do this one newspapers dying Ralph Nader gives birth to one. So Ralph Nader, the 88-year-old uh, eighty-eight activist and four-time presidential candidate, believes his neighbors in Northwest Connecticut are tired of electronics and miss the feel of holding a newspaper. Um, mm. So what he's done is he's, I like this one. Now, when you talk about newspapers, I do think that they have a, a larger significance in a small town um, because in, the, in a big city, there's so much more information to digest than in a small town. And some of the news that might seem really influential or, or interesting in a big city would not be interesting in a small town and vice versa. So he's... The Winston Citizen has been publishing uh, for a little while now, and basically it it covered stories of a newly opened food co-op, um, a ministry that was closed for lack of attendance, um, and that sort of thing. So I really think that um, he is really trying to get more people, in, you know, in this small town connected and like I said and, and like I think you you might agree or may not but it's it's very it's 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 really to you need to get connected in a smaller town because there isn't as much going on and I think people take more interest yep. of things in these towns yeah I totally agree I, I think that blanket statement of uh, you know, newspapers are dying no more is, it's just, that exactly is what it is. It's too broad oh, it to is. think of it that it way. It is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I live, okay, here's an example. I live in Toronto in the Leaside neighborhood and people love the Leaside Post. I personally haven't taken part in any of this community yet, but it's anything from like an actual weekly newsletter to the social media presence to a Facebook group and like everybody keeps posted and it can be, you know, terrible things going on in the neighborhood that people want to take part in the discussion about or fantastic things going on or, you know, hey, guys, let's band together to try to make this um, 
uh, I don't know, project happen, right? So, and that's in the middle of Toronto. It's the biggest and most populated city around here. And still, people love this kind of community bonding uh, feel. So, of course, if it's a small town, it feels like a given to have a newspaper. Yeah, and, and I like the fact that these community newspapers are separate from each other. I know, like, there's the Scarborough Mirror and there's yes. one in where I am. And I just think you lack... Um, a lot if you discontinue these papers and and hopefully this one will be able to catch on i think he paid ten thousand dollars for it and and hopefully it 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 works yeah well and and it's it's a one way to save something that is such a need because where else the star the globe they're not going to put any right. of the information of what's going on that you're there's a big big huge community uh garage sale happening next week uh, in this area of town there are so much of the personalities of, mm-hmm. of communities that are reflected in these that gets lost when these papers go i know lots of people that's the only thing they would read and a lot of big cities they're not interested in the other boroughs they're interested in what's theirs because that's where the home is yeah yeah it's, a, it's yeah, very I... sweet and um connective you know engaging that way billy one more yeah yeah, um, actually, Canadian clothing, clothing companies lack awareness of child labor risks. Canadian press brings us this. So the, the ombudsperson for responsible enterprise is basically saying that Canada is, is lacking information on uh, basically on if there's any child labor being used in the supply chain. And I get this article... Um, essentially, there, we we need more information on where these clothes are being made, if they're being made in a sweatshop, and if so, is there child labor being used? And my response to this is, um, if, if there's a concern, then don't buy the clothing. I mean, what are you going to do? How are you going to get transparency when one shop closes and another shop? Because these sweatshops are a dime a dozen. Mm, and, you know, sadly. one shop closes, another one opens. How are you going to get transparency? How are you supposed to get adequate information on how much, if if there is any child uh, labor use, how are you going to get information on that? I just don't know how they're expected to get that. It's, I mean, you can... Yeah, go ahead. Now, you can put all the laws in place you want, yeah. but I don't know how you're going to get that information. And how is that going to change the only way I can think of uh, at first listen to this is, you know, we, we use other examples and we go from there. How do we get information about our food on our labels? Because at one point that wasn't a thing, right? And you weren't able to get transparency on ingredients. Uh, false advertising, advertising went a really long way on what we thought was in our foods. But now that's not a thing anymore. You, you can't write ice cream if it's not got milk in it, you know? And um, it, all the ingredients, all the information about organic and unorganic, all the stuff is on there. So... That's just one example, but I'm saying maybe we utilize these practices with our clothing, with the the sweatshop question. Yeah, but it's maybe it'll take a while though. Oh, okay, it'll take a while. it will. Yeah. If uh, sure, yeah. Especially because, as you said, they're everywhere and it's not monitored already. Billy, thank you. 
Thanks a lot. They got there all three. That always feels like an accomplishment. Uh, he'll be back tomorrow for the Friday Buzz with Bill. Same time at the end of our first hour. We have a whole other hour of Kelly and Rumia coming your way, hour two, and we have Leslie DePoe, our registered nurse, joining us during that time, talking about alcohol consumption, where she's calling it the good, the bad, and the sober. We also have our roundtable. Kelly McDonald is going to facilitate that one with NBA TV Canada's Randy Irvin, talking a lot of basketball there. But after the break, we have resident foodie Mary Mammoliti joining us. Top game day snacks coming your way for the Super Bowl. This is Kelly and Rumia. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.